Well, welcome back to the Gambone Law Podcast. My name is Alfonso Gambone. And as always with the podcast, we bring in attorneys from outside of the criminal defense world to discuss their practices. And we like to tie in the criminal defense practice with other practices to show how practices overlap. Now, our office focuses on criminal defense, but frequently we need to bring in lawyers from other areas to assist with a case, or perhaps once we get into an area which we cannot help a client, we have to send a client and refer a client to another, to another attorney in the area. Now, today I am joined by Michael Henry. He is an immigration attorney in Philadelphia. He has a law firm, Henry and Grogan in Philadelphia, they focus their practice on immigration. And frequently, I have to discuss with Michael cases involving Im- immigration issues and criminal issues. Uh, so, Michael, welcome. Uh, good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, Michael, uh, can, can you just tell us how long you've been in practice, how long you focused in on the area of, of immigration law, and where that practice has been? Has it been exclusively in Philadelphia? Yes, it has. Uh, I've been practicing for 35 years. Uh, started practicing in 1987. Started doing immigration in the early 90s, and I've been doing it ever since. Uh, I did have uh, other areas that I practice in, but uh, it, for the last uh, eight years, we've focused exclusively on immigration. So, I'm in practice with uh, with my daughter, who's my partner, and our our firm is located uh, in Center City, about a block from City Hall. Okay, so Michael, I want to I want to start off by just talking about how the immigration practice frequently uh, intertwines with a criminal practice. Now, in the case when a person is arrested, and frequently through through this podcast, I'm going to use the word client just to refer to a person. But when a client is arrested, and that client is not a U.S. citizen, uh, can you talk to us about how possibly uh, the immigration authorities would be notified or when and how they're brought in? Yeah, that's going to vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Not all jurisdictions cooperate with the federal government with regard to non-citizens that are in custody as a result of an arrest. Um, sometimes that can just be because they just don't have the resources to do that. But uh, if if a jurisdiction notifies, someone, uh, notice, notifies ICE, that's Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that, that somebody has been arrested, they will uh, verify the immigration status. And if that person is not a citizen, they'll put them on the radar and they'll, they'll conduct an investigation. So um, it makes a difference whether the person is a, a, a lawful permanent resident of the United States or someone he, who is here in, in some non-immigrant status or somebody who has no status at all. If the person has no status at all, they're definitely going to be on ICE's radar and they're likely to institute removal proceedings at the conclusion of the, uh, the criminal case uh, even if, if even if they're not convicted, so um, if it's a if it's a lawful permanent resident or somebody who st- has status, they probably won't do anything uh, unless and until there there's a, a conviction. So, with regards to, let's focus in on people who are here legally. Um, so, what whether it be through a a student visa or a worker visa, some sort. Now, in those situations, you said that some jurisdictions don't necessarily cooperate with the federal government. With that now, in terms of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, where our law firm practices, do those states typically cooperate with the federal government? Uh, it depends on which department. So, uh, the prosecutor's office may not cooperate, uh, but probation might cooperate. So they they may uh, they may notify ICE. Uh, 
sometimes ICE will actually wait outside the courtrooms if they if they know that somebody has uh, uh, has been placed into removal proceedings. So also some of the prisons, uh, the detention facilities will cooperate with ICE and they will um, uh, give access, you know, through their detainee locator or, you know, their, their rosters from the prison. They uh, they may go through and and uh, and identify people that that don't have uh status as as citizens of the United States. So now, obviously, there's a wide variety of crimes and severity of crimes. So when a person is not a citizen and is charged with something like a drunk driving offense. Now, in New Jersey, drunk driving is considered a traffic offense. In Pennsylvania, it is a criminal offense. Would something like that trigger possible immigration consequences? It's not a deportable offense, uh, certainly not for the first offense. I think if there are multiple offenses, uh, uh, it may be something that, um, you know, they, they may try to prosecute somebody on the basis that it's a crime involving moral turpitude if, if there are a number of them. But generally, one DUI is not, gonna, uh, is not going to uh, result in, in the initiation of removal proceedings. Now, they're very interested in, in uh, DUIs. So if that person doesn't have status, uh, it's likely that ICE would put a detainer on that person while they're while they're under arrest. Okay, so speaking about detainers, now in the case of detainers, just for our audience, for those who don't understand, a, a detainer is something that keeps a person in custody despite them posting bail. So hypothetically speaking, a post a, a person who has legal status, who's here legally, commits uh, well is accused of something like a simple assault which in Pennsylvania is a misdemeanor. In New Jersey, it can be graded as a possible indictable crime, but typically it's what's called a disorderly person's offense. So you can kind of classify it as a misdemeanor as well, even though New Jersey doesn't. But in that situation, let's say the judge sets bail at $5,000, 10%. So the person would have to post $500 to be released. So in that situation, something like a simple assault, like a bar fight that occurs in say downtown Philadelphia, would ICE typically lodge a detainer for something like that? Uh, it, it depends on the status of the person. So it's it's a very, very important question once bail is set in a criminal case uh, to evaluate whether it's uh, advisable to post bail. So generally, if, if somebody is a lawful permanent resident uh, or is in Im lawful Im non-immigrant status, uh, they're not going to place a detainer on them unless the offense that's charged is a removable offense. So something like simple assault, uh, because it involves recklessness, is not going to be considered a deportable offense. It's not a not a crime involving moral turpitude, and, and uh, it doesn't become an aggravate. So it's not a crime of violence, it's not a crime of, of moral turpitude. So uh, it's important to evaluate whether bail should be posted. If, if the person, if they haven't placed a detainer on them, uh, then it's then it's okay to uh, to post bond. If there is a detainer on on them, no matter how minor the offense is, uh, that person is is going to be transferred to immigration custody as soon as the bail is posted or within 48 hours. Uh, and then that person is going to be able to apply for a bond. So if it's not a deportable offense and they're eligible for bond, they can apply for a bond in immigration court. However, it's likely that the immigration judge is going to look at the affidavit of probable cause and make make a judgment on whether that person's a danger to the community based upon uh, what's written in the affidavit of probable cause, which in many cases is not going to be favorable evidence um, for that determination. 
Well, so I guess here's my question about as far as the actual crimes, the the crimes of moral turpitude, the, those can be theft, crimes of dishonesty, fraud, things of that nature. And I, I would imagine that, they, that it would also involve anything, any type of sexual crimes, um, as well as aggravated felonies, aggravated assault, burglary, robbery, uh, those types of crimes. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so the immigration code defines what are going to be deportable offenses, and and um, uh, a crime involving moral turpitude would be a deportable offense. Uh, there's a list of about 43 different offenses that are that are defined as aggravated felonies. So there's a federal definition of what's a deportable offense and, and what immigration is going to do is go, they're going to compare the state charge, the state offense to those federal definitions. And they're, they're not going to look at the underlying conduct. They're going to look at the statutory definition and they're going to match up. Uh, they're going to do an analysis to determine whether the state offense is, is equivalent to one of the definitions of a deportable offense. So for instance, you're talking about simple assault. Uh, a crime involving a, a, a crime of violence will be considered a crime involving moral turpitude, but in the case of simple assault, because there's an element of recklessness, because it be it can be committed with recklessness, uh, it's not going to be considered a, a crime in, of violence. It's not doesn't involve the intentional use of, of force. So, so the important thing is they're also going to look at the least culpable conduct necessary to to uh, sustain a conviction. So, no matter what you did. They're going to look at the statute you're charged under, look at the minimum conduct that, that would be punishable under that statute, and determine on that basis whether it matches the federal definition of the deportable offense. Okay. What about gun crimes? Uh, there's a broad category of, of gun charges, so practically any charge involving a gun is going to be uh, considered to be a deportable offense. Okay. So now, in terms of posting bail in state court, hypothetically speaking, person is charged with a gun crime. New Jersey, as you might know, doesn't have cash bail anymore. They have a pretrial detention proceeding, which the judge determines whether or not the person should be released on monitoring or supervision prior to trial. Uh, Pennsylvania still has the has the cash bail system. So let's just focus in on Pennsylvania for a second. Bail, bail is set at $100,000. The person's here legally. Family posts to $10,000 to obtain that person's release. Now at that point, um, ICE would come in and take that person into custody, and then the immigration lawyer would have to go into court and argue for bail there. Is that is that my understanding? Yeah. So uh, in Pennsylvania, if if bail is posted, you're going to be transferred to immigration custody. Generally, within a week to a week and a half, you're going to have a hearing in front of an immigration judge. Uh, in order to get released on bond, you have to make a bond request. So um, one, the first thing the judge is going to do is determine if that person is eligible. Uh, for bond, and if they ha if they have been convicted of a deportable offense, uh, they're not going to be eligible for bond. Uh, sometimes there's a legal argument as to whether or not a, an offense is a deportable offense, and one and generally that person will remain in custody until that issue is resolved. And and in many cases that issue may may resolve whether the case even moves forward. If you you might be able, might be able to get it terminated. Um, so in in the case of of someone who hasn't been convicted, who's been charged with a crime and post bail. You have the allegations of the crime uh, that are going to, uh, and, and there are no other disqualifying convictions. You're, you're going to have the allegations of that crime, which are going to be the basis of the judge's decision on on bond. So sometimes we would prefer that the charges be resolved because if somebody pleads to a lesser 
offense or if, if uh, they get ARD or if they uh, or if the case gets dismissed, uh, then uh, if the person is transferred to immigration custody, the determination uh, about whether whether or not they're a danger to the community may be much, much more favorable. So if you have very serious charges out there, it's likely you're going to be detained. Okay, so let's use a situation though where a person is is arrested, the bail is set, their intent is to proceed to trial, or at least that's initially what they plan on doing. And the courts, as you know, in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, frequently set trials out for could be it could be over a year in some cases. I mean, I'm receiving trial dates now for 2024. Um, so in that situation, obviously, if a person can be released on bail, they want to obtain the release rather than sitting in, in jail. Um, now, in terms of the bail guidelines on the immigration side, are they similar to what they are in state court? So, I mean, really, we don't, I mean, they say that there's guidelines, but in my experience, judges kind of just go off of just experience, uh, just previous cases. In Philadelphia, I like to tell people that typically, if it's a gun crime and and you have prior criminal history, you're typically looking at bail between seventy-five dollars to $100,000, typically. Mm-hmm. Some judges come in a little lower, but I always tell families, expect bail to be in that range, um, even if you have no prior criminal history because you're facing potential estate sentence. Uh, in terms of immigration, what types of bails are you seeing? Well, uh, the minimum uh, the minimum bond would be $1,500. Uh, if the person is eligible for bond, it's generally a crime that is uh, not particularly serious. So uh, if there is a, a criminal history, uh, the bond is going to be higher. Uh, you're going to see probably at the low end, 3,500. Uh, generally, uh, 7,500 to 10,000 would be a, a typical bond in a case where the, the judge has determined they're not a danger to the community and they're not a flight risk. Those are the two standards that the judge is going to employ. Uh, on occasion, I've seen bonds as high as 25,000, but they're, but they're, uh, they're fairly rare. Uh, they, they do take into consideration the ability to pay. So just so I understand, in, in a situation where a person is charged with a serious crime, let's say um, rape, uh, where they're here legally and there's no issue as far as their status, the bail is, say, $200,000. The family posts it. The immigration judge could say that I don't believe this person is entitled to bail. Is that Well, that in, in, in the case where there are allegations of rape, the judge is in all likelihood, uh, very likely, to conclude that the person is a danger to the community, regardless of the evidence. They're going to look at the prob- the affidavit of probable cause. That's going to be taken into consideration. They're going to be able to question the, the uh, respondent in court about the crime and what happened and what their version of it is. So they will be, uh, in order to get bond, they would have to make statements. So if there's no conviction, if, if it's mere allegations, crimes like DUI and um, domestic violence, or simple assault are generally going to be crimes that are going to result in a determination by the judge that the person is a danger to the community, and it's likely that that bond would be denied or set it at a very high level. So now, in these proceedings, who has the burden of proof? The, the federal government does. Is that correct? Uh, well, uh, as far as proving a, a, whether you're a danger to the community, uh, or that you're not a danger to the community, or you're uh, or you're not a flight risk, it, it's your burden of proof. Okay. Uh, there are situations after if a person has been t- detained for a long time, uh, say six months or more, uh, they, they in some cases are entitled to a hearing, in which case the government would, would bear the burden of proving uh, 
why continued detention is necessary. So they would have to prove that that they are a danger to the community uh, or that they are a flight risk. We've spoken a lot about pretrial. Let's talk about post-trial. Let's assume for a second the person is either pleads guilty or has been convicted. And let's use the example of something like a an aggravated assault where it's a felony, but the judge decides the person doesn't need to go to, to prison or jail. And that happens a lot in places like Philadelphia. And the judge sentences the person to five years of probation. Mm-hmm. It's a legal sentence. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, or perhaps there's, there's some type of house arrest worked in there. And now in that situation where we're dealing with a crime of violence, it's a it's my understanding, a removable offense. Uh, Would immigration begin removal proceedings at that point? Well, they would certainly analyze it. So if it's if it's a single offense, uh, if it's if it's a crime involving the intentional use of force, it would be a crime of violence. So it would be a crime involving moral turpitude. But that not doesn't necessarily uh, make you deportable. Uh, if if it has if it's more than five years after you after you've been admitted to the United States, it's not going to be a deportable offense. If it's a second offense, an unrelated offense, uh, if there's a second crime involving moral turpitude, then um, you could be charged on that basis. And so it could be a deportable offense if there was a prior crime involving moral turpitude, as long as they didn't arise out of the same scheme. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, an aggravated assault could be considered an aggravated felony because it's a crime of violence if the sentence is more than a year. So if it's a year year or more, um, and uh, then it's gonna be considered an aggravated felony and they would institute removal proceedings there. So one of the the tricky things about immigration and criminal law is that uh, it doesn't matter how much time you serve. If you have an upper, if you have a range sentence like 11 and a half to 23 and a half months, Immigration is only going to look at the upper range of that, and they're going to consider that to be a jail sentence of a year or more. And that that's true even if it's a suspended sentence. As long as there's some sentence that's a year or more uh, and it, and it uh, is a crime of violence, it's going to be considered an aggravated felony, which is going to limit the relief for that person. So a year or more, would that, I mean, that would include... Would that include probation? So if it was a five-year term of probation? No, no, no. only incarceration. Okay. So probation wouldn't wouldn't count. But sometimes uh, you could sentence to somebody to three years suspended, five years probation. It, the The problem is the um, is a suspended sentence or a sentence within a certain range. The, you could say, uh, "I'll sentence you to time served uh, to twenty four months." That's that's going to be. Uh, considered a 24-month sentence, uh, more than a year, and if the, if it involves uh, a crime, if it's a crime of violence, then that that offense, no matter what the facts are, could be considered an aggravated felony. So, in terms of removal proceedings, how long does that typically take after the state court proceedings are done? Well, uh, after after the state court proceedings are done and there's no sentence, or if there is a sentence at the completion of the sentence, uh, ICE has, uh, and, and there's a detainer lodge, ICE would have 48 hours to pick that person up. There's a lot of leeway there. And they'd be taken to one of the detention facilities here in Pennsylvania. Those are either Moshannon Valley Processing Center, Pike County uh, Prison, um, and uh, Clinton County Prison, uh, things like that. And um, generally, uh, the person would have a hearing within two weeks. 
and that would be for both bond and uh, to determine whether or not the person is removable. You know, the government has the has the uh, burden of uh, making the charges, and they have to prove by clear and convincing evidence that uh, that they have been convicted of a, of a removable offense. So that means that they have to get the records necessary to prove the conviction. And once they do that, uh, the judge can make a decision on whether they're removable. And at that point, uh, the person uh, would would apply for relief from removal, and that can take a variety of forms. So in terms of removal proceedings, it's it's a hearing before a federal judge. Is that correct? Yeah, it's an administrative judge. Uh, it's part of the Department of uh, Justice. So they're, they're, uh, they're agency judges. Uh, the prosecutor is the Department of Homeland Security. They, they're called trial attorneys. And, and they prosecute the cases, that, and, and it's heard before the, uh, before the Department of Justice. And in terms of the hearing itself, procedurally, do they typically take testimony there, or is it purely documents? Uh, no, there's testimony. So the initial hearing would be called a master hearing, and it's basically to take pleadings. It's kind of like an arraignment. There are hearings for bonds. There are hearings uh, for scheduling, things like that. But you, you make the initial determination of removability. You determine what relief the person's going to be applying for. And then um, it, it could be continued for the submission of evidence or applications. And then once everything's ready for trial, then a trial date would be set. And typically, uh, currently, that's about two to three months out from the time of the first hearing. So in terms of trial, in a situation where a person is not contesting removal proceedings, um, would that, I'm assuming that would fast track things. Is that correct? Well, uh, the determination of removability is made at that master hearing. And then, uh, to, uh, th then the person would be obligated to apply for some form of relief. And there, there's various forms. You could apply for asylum if you're afraid to go back to your country of origin. You could apply for something called cancellation of removal. Uh, and, and that involves a hardship waiver. Um, if, if you're talking about somebody who's not a lawful permanent resident, they have to show that they they have to prove that they were in the country for 10 years, uh, that they're that they haven't been convicted of a disqualifying offense and uh, that uh, their removal would result in exceptional and extremely unusual hardship for a qualifying relative. And that would be a, a parent, spouse or child. OK, so but what I, I guess what I'm asking is this in terms of a person who's brought in to these proceedings and and simply doesn't want to contest it, has no problem going back to their country of origin. Right. In those situations, I would assume that would fast track things. Is that right? Yes. The The judge could enter an order of removal at the, uh, uh, at the master hearing level. Uh, and if the person waives appeal, uh, the, then ICE, uh, then it's only a matter of how much time it would take ICE to execute the order. And that depends on the country. Uh, for, for the most part, they could probably remove that person within 30 or 60 days. So now in terms of a person who doesn't receive like a probation sentence, who receives like a state prison sentence, and let's say it's one and a half to three years. So that their minimum date for release is 18 months. Would the federal government have that person serve the year and a half, be eligible for parole and then step in and institute removal proceedings? Uh, they uh, they conduct removal proceedings um, both while the person is serving their sentence and at the conclusion of their sentence. And um, I believe it's probably uh, an internal decision based upon the severity of the crime and, and then the nature of possible relief. So, uh, for instance, this morning, uh, I, I was uh, I participated in a hearing where the person was at the State Correctional Institute in, uh, in Huntington. 
And uh, so uh, in that case, there's there are multiple aggravated felonies, uh, so the, the relief is fairly limited. Uh, the only thing he's eligible for is something called deferral of removal. So he has to prove that that it, he'd be tortured or persecuted if he went back to his country uh, because of the nature of his offenses. So for the most part, it's usually at the conclusion of the sentence and then a transfer to immigration custody. But for a certain category of, of offenses, um, very serious crimes, uh, or a lot of times federal offenses that are aggravated felonies, uh, they do uh, Allenwood hearings, they do uh, State Correctional Institute hearings, uh, but but for the most part, it's after the conclusion of the sentence. And in terms of sending the person back, if a judge orders a person to be removed from the country, is it just federal agents putting a person on a ship or a plane and seeing that they get on and that's it? Yeah, well, the, the person has to have a, a valid, unexpired travel document. And if they don't have that, uh, sometimes that can be an issue. They're they're required to cooperate with the consulate or the the embassy in their country to apply for a travel document if they don't already have one. Uh, some countries will cooperate. Some others won't. For for example, it's very difficult to get a travel document from India. Uh, they they may not respond to the requests. Um, but uh, the other thing also that can complicate matters is that that if they are convicted of an aggravated felony, then generally. Uh, an ICE agent will have to travel with them back to the country and getting a travel document for that individual may be a, a difficulty as well because the country may not cooperate with the issuing, a, you know, a, the necessary visas for that person to accompany the person. So what now in terms of the aggravated felony, if a person has served their sentence, why would the federal agent need to travel back with them to the country of origin? I, I think it's a it's just a security concern. Uh, okay particularly if it's a, a violent crime. I, I don't know whether they have a, I don't know whether it's all aggravated felonies, but in many cases, uh, they, that person would probably be traveling under restraints with with an officer accompanying them. Okay, so, but then but once the person, they get on the plane with the federal agent, they land in the country of origin. I mean, obviously at that point, the federal agent's jurisdiction is, they've exceeded the federal agent's jurisdiction. So you mentioned the person is, is flying in restraints. At what point do the restraints come off and you can't hold me anymore? Yeah, um, generally they're going to be released to officials on the ground in the, in the country of origin. Uh, what, what they do from there is, is country specific, so they may release them. Uh, some countries like the Dominican Republic have, a, have an agency that registers returning deportees, so they have to register and they may be monitored by the country. Mm-hmm. Um, some some may even imprison them or uh, for a period of time, but for the most part, I, I believe the uh, they're they're free once they get to the country of origin. Well, just let me ask you. I mean, I mean, in in your experience, I mean, have you have you had situations where countries have imprisoned people after they've served their time here? We we've had asylum claims where where the, there was that worry. Uh, hmm. uh, if if they have been uh, if they are convicted of an aggravated a serious crime here, they they may suffer a period of uh, of uh, detention there, and you know not all countries are uh, uh, some countries act arbit- arbitrarily with regard to return. You know they they're undesirable to begin with. They may uh, attribute their presence in the country to an increase in the crime rate, whether it's justified or not. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, not not every uh, individual who's a returning deportee as a result of a criminal conviction is is going to be treated uh, treated well in their in their country. Could you possibly provide me with some countries that perhaps don't treat 
uh, returnees very well? Uh, well, uh, we've had uh, we've had situations where a person was a, they were trying to deport them to Haiti, and the Haitian officials on the ground wouldn't permit them to uh, get off the plane uh, because they didn't want the person. Um, uh, like I said, the Dominican Republic has uh, a registry, and uh, while while they will take them. That registry is is publicly available to banks and employers. So that person, you know, regardless of the facts of the case, uh, would be stigmatized and may have difficulty getting a job or may may uh, or getting credit at a bank, things like that. Yeah, you know, it's it, you mentioned uh, other countries and the authorities there. I know when I was in the army a long time ago, when I was in Iraq, uh, we had dealings with the Iraqi police. We and uh, I remember that when there was an issue in Baghdad and, and our soldiers would go out and I was involved with like uh, international claims and things like that just for property damage and things of that nature. But many Iraqis were scared to death of the Iraqi police because it was like, I remember I was out with a group of soldiers and we were in Baghdad and we were riding through and these guys came in uh, in these looked like just these jeeps with AK-47s and masks on, and I, and I mentioned to one of the soldiers. I said, "Who's that?" He said, "That's that's the IP." I said, "IP Iraqi police," and they said, "It's like it's like cowboys. They it would just come in and just you know grab a guy out of a out of a house, and you're coming with us." And you know, two days later, the guy shows up dead, and they would just drop him off and said, "Oh, we found him this way," and just be gone. Uh, so I know that, I mean, I think in this country, people take for granted sometimes uh, how professional the, the police and the, the, the accountability here in other countries, especially, I guess, what I would consider a third world country, um, really, that's, they don't have that. It's just, uh, I know just dealing with them over there, I mean, they were just, even, even the way they were dressed, you, you couldn't tell who the police officers were and who the, who the, who the bad guys were. Uh, so that does, that does happen. Uh, Mike, I, I don't want to keep it too long, but in terms of in terms of these um, dealing with the with the federal government uh, in terms of removal proceedings. Now, in criminal practice, frequently we can enter into into plea negotiations and and work something out, whether it be for probation or perhaps a less of a of a jail sentence or a prison sentence in some cases. Uh, it doesn't sound like you can really work anything out in terms of it's either you're here or you're going to go back. There's no in-between. Is that fair? DHS uh, is not easy to negotiate with. Generally, they're, they're not interested in doing that. Um, they, um, if, if they, uh, most, most of the trial attorneys that we deal with are, are pretty reasonable. Uh, they will evaluate uh, the case and they'll, they'll uh, listen to a legal argument. They may accept it. Uh, but generally, they're going to have their position. They're going to they're going to let the judge make the decisions in the case. So, um, uh, so there there is some negotiation, but it's 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 not very much. Okay, and then just last question for you: in terms of looking at a person and a judge, or perhaps a DHS attorney looking at possibly uh, working something out with with the with the other with the other side. Things like family, if they're married, if they have children, um, what the kids born here, uh, the kids' ages, all that. Um, how important are things like that? Well, they're very important. Um, there's no consistency in terms of uh, how those factors will affect uh, custody decisions, 
it certainly affects uh, decisions regarding relief from from removal. So if you're applying for a hardship waiver, obviously uh, the nature and extent of family connections, uh, the extent to which the family relies on you for support, uh, whether it's financial, emotional, et cetera, uh, are definitely factors uh, that are going to be taken into account in granting relief. So that so you have to uh, you have to establish hardship, but you also have to be entitled to an exercise of favorable discretion. So you may be the the primary breadwinner. You you may have plenty of family connections, but the nature of your crime may be um, so serious or um, uh, you know to some extent uh, disturbing that uh, that you may not warrant an, a favorable exercise of discretion. So there's always always discretion that you have to deal with too. So a lot of sexual offenses, particularly if they involve minors, are going to be very difficult, even if you're entitled, even if you establish that you're entitled to relief, uh, they're going to be difficult to, uh, uh, you know, in in those cases, the, the family connections are, are, are not so important. So now, I said it was the last question, but, but I do Sorry. have one more. Pennsylvania and, and New Jersey are fairly large states. So in terms of where these cases are heard, in so for, I mean, is there one court that covers so many counties in Pennsylvania? Is there one court that covers so many counties in New Jersey? How many courts are there? Right. Well, in in New Jersey, the courts are in Newark, uh, and the detained cases are heard at the Elizabeth Detention Center. So uh, those those uh, hearings are conducted via televideo. Uh, in Pennsylvania, we have the Philadelphia Immigration Court. That's for the entire state. That's for the non-detained cases, and the detained cases are are heard either out of the Cleveland immigration court uh, by video conference uh, at usually at Moshannon Valley Processing Center. That's the primary detention facility in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, Pike County Prison is uh, is covered by the Baltimore Immigration Court. And uh, the Cleveland Court also uses judges out of Richmond. So so there's probably five or six judges uh, that that handle the detained cases in Pennsylvania uh, in those in those three jurisdictions. But it's all done by video. Okay, so everyone is appearing via video. Uh, the the uh, respondents the, the, who are detained are, are appearing at the facility uh, via video, and the attorneys in their offices and the judges, sometimes from home, uh, but or or in a court. Now, has that always been the case, even before things like COVID? No, um, there were there were uh, there were no remote hearings uh, for the at least for attorneys. Attorneys would either appear telephonically. Or in person, and and for the most part, I I would appear in person. Wow. Um, so 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 you, you know now so now are they pretty much all video? Uh, yes, even even the non-detained cases here in Philadelphia are, are primarily video cases. The individual hearings uh, are optional. You can appear in person, or you can appear by video. So you can conduct an entire trial on on uh, WebEx or whatever the. Uh, okay, so and then so but in the past there was. You said it was Cleveland, Richmond. Yeah, um, Cleveland. Cleveland is the main jurisdiction for Moshannon Valley Processing Center. Mm-hmm. There are judges in Richmond that cover the Cleveland cases. So and, Richmond, Virginia. Yep, Richmond, Virginia. Yep. And Cleveland, Ohio. Right. Which is which, which is not close to Philadelphia. Not at all, and right. uh, it really it, all of the cases were handled out of York, Pennsylvania. There was a court in the prison at York County. And they mm-hmm. uh, they lost the contract there, and they divvied up to the different jurisdictions. And it, uh, one thing that makes it um, difficult is that uh, when it was at York County Prison, and there was an appeal, uh, 
generally the appeals go to the Board of Immigration Appeals and then they go to the circuit court. So everything out of York would have been appealed to the Third Circuit. Now we have Cleveland, which is in the Sixth Circuit. We have Richmond, which is in the Fourth Circuit. Uh, we have judges in, in uh, Baltimore, which I think is also the, the Fourth Circuit. Um, so that it's uncertain right now which, which uh, circuit court you should be taking the appeal to. It's no longer, rarely are there circumstances where it would be the Third Circuit unless you're dealing with a New Jersey case. This has been great. Could you tell our listeners and our viewers if they need help with an immigration issue, where they can find you and your partner? Why don't you give us uh, your, your website and your phone number and just where your office is and the areas that you serve? Well, the phone number is 215-568-1500. We're at 100 South Broad Street, about one block south of City Hall in the land title building in Suite 1605. And our website is henrygrogan.com. So that's H-E-N-R-Y-G-R-O-G-A-N.com. Well, great. And, and, and Mike, in terms of the cases that you handle, um, would those be strictly in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, or do you go outside of, the, of those two states? Uh, we can handle them anywhere in the country. Um, now with WebEx, uh, it's easier to handle them, but we handle cases at the border. We handle cases uh, in, in pretty much every state. Any, a lot of cases in Texas because of border crossings, uh, you know, Batavia, New York. Um, but yeah, we can handle them anywhere. If it's an in-person hearing, we, we, we generally restrict ourselves to Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Okay. Well, Mike, this has been great. I want to thank you again for, for coming on the podcast. I know that um, our clients and their families will appreciate it. And um, the people that we share this with on our social media and our web and our newsletter updates are also going to gain some value. So uh, thank you again for appearing and look forward to speaking with you soon on a, on a, on a new case. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. And that's the most important thing. If, if you're not a citizen, you definitely want to get, um, get advice from a qualified immigration attorney. If, if you've been charged with a crime. Great, Mike. Thank you. All right. Take care. Well, again, thank you for listening to the Gambone Law Podcast. If you have questions or concerns about immigration law, please reach out to Mike Henry. He did provide his phone number and his website. We will provide that on the podcast before we close things out. But again, if you have questions regarding a criminal offense issue, 215-755-9000 in Pennsylvania, 856-793-7429 in New Jersey, the website gambonelaw.com. And I will talk to you all very soon.